to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level, their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Welcome, my name is Daria Brown, and I have a returning guest this week, one of my favorite, Dr. Gil Tippy. He is a clinical psychologist who practices in Sonoma County, California. We heard his podcast a year or so ago about his Dirty Hands Developmental Alliance, which we'll pick up again after the pandemic. And he's a consultant and a writer. He's a founder and clinical director of both the Rebecca School in New York City and Shrub Oak Academy in upstate New York. And these days, he is mostly thinking about education, DIR, the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, and where it stands in the world. Welcome, Dr. Tippy. Oh, thank you so much. I am so happy to be back. It's, it's, a, it's a delight. It's great to have you back. And uh, the topic for this week is Dr. Tippy's latest chapter in an upcoming book called Good Autism Education is Just Good Education. And I saw you present about this at the ICDL conference, Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning conference, the DIR floor time conference in November. And um, it blew everybody away. So I can't wait to bring this to the listeners and viewers on YouTube. So um, yeah, tell us about why you wrote this chapter. Well, let me just start by saying that I love teachers. My family is filled with teachers. I was a teacher for many years in a classroom. Um, I've taught in all different settings. I now consult all over the world to different schools and I see teachers every day. And I think teachers are wonderful human beings. Most of them are there because they are good hearted people trying to do good. And so everything I say about education should come with that understanding that I actually from classroom to classroom see beautiful teaching going on, wonderful teaching, but almost always it is because the teacher is wonderful not because the system in which they sit is wonderful because very often the system in which they sit gets in their way in almost every possible way. But uh, there are wonderful teachers. I see them every day. And so the nothing I say is intended to be an indictment of teachers in any way. It is intended to be an indictment of really um, flawed systems, which don't help these good hearted, intelligent, brave, charismatic individuals transmit good education. So let's just start with that because I, I love teachers and have been a teacher and have related to teachers. So I, I think the world of them. The reason why I came up with this as a topic really was prompted by the pandemic because the pandemic really made me start to think what are people seeing of education now? How did schools react to having to go online, uh, for instance? And what began to happen in education, or at least what began to be revealed in education? And so it, it, it sort of stripped away a lot of the, uh, the, the fancy dressings of education and sort of boil it down so that I could see it more clearly. And it, it crystallized for me a lot of my thinking about education, things that I had been thinking for a long time, but really couldn't uh, put into words, but which I now better understand. And so that's why I started uh, thinking about how did we get to where we are in autism education? Well, how did we get what tends to be the predominant paradigm in autism education, which tends to be um, delivering um, facts in small chunks to people. And how did we get there? And um, how does that play 
uh, on, a, on a computer screen, what are parents seeing of education now that they never saw before, and what role does a school actually play in a family's life? And so that's why I wrote the book chapter uh, in response to a request to participate in the book. And so um, I wrote, this was my choice, this book chapter. And then I presented on this um, at um, ICDL because um, I wanted to let people know that there are other ways to educate children than what we're doing. And there are certainly other ways to educate persons with developmental challenges than what we're predominantly doing as a society. And it, you know, I say in the book chapter, and I might've said in the presentation, I've lived all my life in the United States. And so I am immersed in this culture. I mean, I understand this culture as well as I can, given that I haven't been everywhere in the United States. And the United States is a big uh, country, but I've also consulted around the world. And I find that very often I get the exact same complaints that I'm getting in the United States. And so I thought this was, this was more or less a universal um, problem. But if there are places, I say in the book chapter, where you think you the practitioner or you the receiver, either as a parent or as a person with a developmental challenge, if there are places where you believe good education is happening and your country happens to be handling it well, I would love to hear from you <laughs> because what I always encounter are obviously people who have real challenges with the educational system and what's being delivered. So that's why I wrote it um, just in general. Well, I, I really like how you mentioned that when when COVID hit and all of a sudden everybody's going online, it just really gives a chance for everything to be reset in education. And um, I don't know if that's where you were planning to start, but well, I had I had um, I have been saying for years privately, sotto voce, um, we should just close all of education for a year and start again because the giant educational industrial complex, which is a phrase I stole from um, uh, Gatto, the, the educational theorist and great teacher from New York City, um, the educational industrial complex, which has come to be, is feeding something, but it's not in general, doing the best job for the people receiving the education. And so if we just, I could never see any way to fix it slowly, incremental, incrementally, which is what people have been trying to do. Um, and I always thought, well, we've just got to shut the whole thing down. And then the pandemic came and then it shut down. So, you know, here's the miraculous opportunity. But what happened was that we didn't suddenly decide, oh, we're going to become uh, the kind of educational system that stops just delivering facts and suddenly becomes the kind of educational system which creates um, creative thinkers. What happened, I saw over and over again around the world was we're gonna start pounding facts even more at people because that's what we think education looks like. Like, so when it suddenly shows up in your living room um, and the parents are sitting there seeing now what was going on in the classroom, you know, they don't generally get to sit in classrooms. So now all of a sudden they're sitting in the classroom. Suddenly it's facts, boom, boom, boom. You know, here's what I can show you with the internet. And um, so the worst tendencies of education suddenly started getting played out. Kids started not wanting to attend. I don't know how it is in uh, Canada right now, but if you look at the educational statistics in lots of places in the United States, what is happening is kids are just dropping out and not attending their online classes, the older kids. Younger kids are enthusiastic. They wanna show their cat has walked into the frame. They wanna show everybody, they're laughing. They're, you know, and these charismatic younger teachers with these young kids, there's a lot of real bubbly stuff going on, but the older kids are just saying, forget it, I'm out. And it may be because they don't have access to the proper technology. They may be attending to their younger sibs and getting them on. There might be a million reasons why they are uh, dropping out, but uh, 
I suspect it's because the education that's getting pounded at them is, you know, endless facts. And that's what people think education looks like. For me, that's what I would call as if education or the education show. So as if education is, I've got to make it look like I'm doing something because people are expecting something to be done. And so what they know to do is this thing, which looks like, wow, that, that's a lot of information, that much be education. And in fact, if you saw real education going on in your living room, it would be much quieter and there would be a lot of silence. And um, so that's what I was reacting to. I'm teaching a pod class right now of eighth graders um, uh, who are not in their school systems because the school system wasn't able to accommodate them in the way that they thought was safe. And so I'm teaching a group of eighth graders language arts. And so the way the language arts class looks, if you're doing it online, which we are, because just like you, we're on lockdown in Sonoma County here. Um, the way it looks is we sign on together, we talk about the subject at hand, and then they are sitting silently and writing <laughs> because we're working on five paragraph essays, which is what you, you know, want to logically be able to do and able to be able to go to college, to be able to get into high schools and apply and do all of those things, get a job. So we're working on five paragraph essays in the language arts class. We're doing it from a, from a perspective of looking at the original documents of the um, United, United States founding and looking at it in terms of human rights and things like that. But they're writing five paragraph essays. So after about nine minutes of me showing things and talking and us talking a little bit and going back and forth, they return to their written work and they put their heads down and we all stay on screen and we look at the top of each other's heads writing. And then they, you know, occasionally a kid will raise his hand and say, you know, you know Dr. Tippy or D Dr. T, I, I, I was wondering about this or I was wondering about that. And then I explain it and or we talk about how to handle something grammatically or, you know, what their thought process might be about this. And then they go back to writing. And the reason is I don't care about the product at all. What I care about is that they can look at something in front of them and they can um, figure out that they have within them the thing that they need to do what I'm calling a transformation. What I'm talking about is that there are only two things in education. Education breaks down into two things only. One of them are all the things you have to know about a subject. And all those things you have to know about a subject are the givens of that subject. And those are the easiest things to teach. Those are the facts of the subject. So the givens that little kids are learning are the numbers and the letters. Um, those things are the things you have to know. That's your little toolbox, right? The symbols in math, you know, what those symbols stands for, the facts, the rules, they're necessary you need them, they're easy to teach, but they are not sufficient. They are not um, education. They are simply half of education and they are by far the easiest half of education to teach. So when we're looking at um, education in general, people wanna teach that part of the education. They really like that part of the education. And the reason why they like it is because it's, um, it's measurable. It's, um, you know, when you're talking about how your province makes decisions about an educational system for kids with challenges, they always want to know about measurable. Is it measurable? Well, the fact part of it is measurable, but facts are not education. They just aren't. They are the beginning part of education and which typically get taught in the early grades. 
Uh, but they're the first three functional emotional developmental capacities. So if you're listening to an affect autism podcast, you probably know about DIR floor time, and you probably know that the first three functional emotional developmental capacities are the parts that can be done, which are um, engagement, um, staying regulated, and opening and closing some simple circles. That's the part that all of that education focuses on. Be attentive, learn some simple things, open and close some simple circles. When I tell you to do something, you do it. And that's the part that all of early education is focused on. But unfortunately, that paradigm sticks and it continues to be the thing that um, education focuses on. And in the pandemic, it became absolutely apparent that that's the part that was really getting paid attention to. That um, early part, the transmission of facts. If you look at high school education, at least in the United States, what ends up happening very often is you get more and more elaborate sets of facts, which you have to memorize, and then you have to be tested on them. What our students have learned to do, and I suspect it's the same in Canada, and I suspect it's the same around the world, what they have learned to do is they study the facts like crazy all week, then they regurgitate them on the Friday test, and then over the weekend, they get rid of them. And, you know, those, that technique of learning is sort of a binge and purge kind of technique of learning, uh, or cram and dump kind of education, where you learn a bunch of stuff, you memorize it as best you can, and then you pump it out. That's simply the first part of education. The facts are not the education. What is the education is um, the next three functional emotional developmental capacities. It breaks down actually perfectly in the middle. The next three functional emotional developmental capacities you know, being able to be abstract, being able to think symbolically, being able to make a logical bridge between ideas, all of that is what I'm calling being able to do a transformation on the facts. And that's all education is. So what good education is, is you give people the ability to uh, know the facts, but then you put a problem in front of them that they should, your job is to get them to the place where they believe that they have inside of them the ability to look at the facts that are present and to problem solve them to the next step, um, to make what I am calling a transformation on them. And that's all of good education because once you have the notion inside of you that you are able to look at a, a situation, whatever it might be, and make decisions about how to turn that situation which is in front of you into the next thing, your education is basically done. And then the rest of education is really just moving you to the next set of facts which are quickly taught. And then you bring that exact same skill to those facts. So for instance, um, if you were very early in your education and you had um, uh, a set of 10 beads, those would be the, the things which are in front of you. And Piaget did these exact experiments, these exact conservation experiments and number experiments. And someone said, you know, give two equal parts to two people without telling you what that would be your ability to say to yourself, oh, I have the ability, I know what half means, I know what equal means, I have the basic facts. Now I can take a look at this and just transform it and get it to the next step. So that would be the simplest example, right? The most, uh, a very complex example would be, I don't know those of you who, I, I'm constantly thinking about the movie Hidden Figures, which is about the, um, the woman who did a lot of the computations for our space program to put John Glenn into orbit, for instance. And um, the difference between dividing beads 
and doing all of the possible calculations to get to the place where you can put someone safely into orbit is the exact same process. But the difference is that you look at your set of facts and you say, my goal is to put someone into orbit. So what step needs to happen now to move my set of facts? Oh, there it is, hidden figures, there it is. Um, to move that set of facts one step closer to what I want my final goal to be. What, um, what transformation do I have to do? And then what's the next logical transformation? And then what's the next logical transformation? And then always moving in the direction of my goal. So that's all of education. But it's very actually simple. But we never do it. We almost never do it. And the reason why we never do it, that's, uh, that's another one of my slides, thank you. Um, the reason why we never do it is because it is very much harder to measure and very much harder to justify than transmitting the facts, have those facts clearly proven to be facts, have them be memorized for the children and have them be regurgitated on something that's easy to demonstrate that. So you can say to your administrator or, or the administration will say, prove to me you did that. And you will be able to say, I, before they met me, the students didn't know these facts then they met me and now they know these facts. So I was the factor that created that situation. So there, that's, that's my justification for being. And teachers don't wanna do that. Trust me, teachers wanna be you know, creative thinkers and do these marvelous things, but they have to because that's how they're being graded in their ability. And that's how they move ahead and get their paychecks and the administrators do it because that's how they keep their jobs. And the, you know, the principal does it and the superintendent does it and the state education department does it. And the, you know, the national education director does it because that's how they can justify it. I have to say that previous slide that you showed him on with all the marvelous brain stuff going on, um, where I say it is very difficult to do is not really true. It is actually easy to get to move children into being creative thinkers, but you have to do it <laughs> and you have to focus on it and you can't just drift along. It is a constant um, process of challenging students to imagine the world as different than it is right in front of them. And by constantly referring students back into themselves. So the great teaching paradigms that I happen to be anchored in um, the European teaching traditions, I am not anchored in African teaching traditions or even particularly well anchored in Asian teaching traditions. So forgive my prejudices and my blind spots. But if you think about Socrates <coughs> in Athens, teaching the youth of Athens, and youth really was, you know, the wealthy white men who were not enslaved and owned property in Athens, but the young men of Athens. Um, there was never a moment where he did anything but question everything that you know, and look inside yourself for the answers to things. And that's what education actually is. We want theoretically to have free thinkers. We want people to be problem solvers. We hold up on a pedestal, the people who have solved these problems and made money doing it. You know, We think they're wonderful, amazing people. And yet our educational paradigm doesn't necessarily support that. And so people who have developmental challenges, really, which is the point here, rather than an indictment of every educational institution in the world, but people who have developmental challenges are getting the very worst of that. They are getting very often in many places, most places, 
they're getting facts pounded at them. They're getting compliance demanded of them. Um, and they, uh, that is held up as the highest that they will go. And so the pandemic really focused that for me. It made me ask myself, how is it that parent, I mean, I've asked this question for many years. How come parents stick with crummy schools? Why do parents send their kids to crummy schools? Um, and so there are a bunch of things I think that contributed and the pandemic really focused it for me. Um, parents are terrified very often that if they leave the school they're in, they will not find another school that will take their child and that will keep their child reasonably safe. And they are, parents are faced with a really dramatic decision. They, and the pandemic brought this really into focus. They need someone who can sensibly occupy their child so that they can keep the family going. <laughs> and when schools closed, it became dramatically apparent that one of the primary functions of schools is childcare. And that I, as an educator, always knew in the back of my mind, there was a tickle in the back of my mind that this was true, but it became deadly clear in the pandemic. Parents need children to be occupied. And if you have a child with a developmental challenge, you need, not only do you need your child to be uh, occupied, like in a 30 person classroom where not much is going on, but you know, at least they're all sitting at desks. You also need someone who is going to keep your child safe and is going to bring your child home um, in reasonable condition and not injured in any way. Um, so parents who found that educational system uh, stuck with it because they were taught by the system, I would point out, that if you leave your school, you're gonna have trouble finding another one. <laughs> you're gonna have trouble finding another place to put your kid. If you don't think we're doing a good job, the next place may not keep your kid as safe. The next place, even though you kind of suspect maybe this isn't great education, but you do think, oh my God, I'm, I'm in a really tough spot. So that became really, 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 really clear to me. And, um, and that's why I wrote the book chapter about what was going on. I do think that it is possible for us to do a good job in education generally and a good job in education with people who have developmental challenges. Uh, but it requires a different kind of education. And for me, it boils down to a developmental mindset in education. I do DIR floor time. It's all that I do. I believe that Stanley's, uh, Stanley Greenspan's ideas are as good as anybody's, um, that his developmental paradigm is as good as anybody's. I do think there are other developmental paradigms that are perfectly sensible. Um, I do think the early practitioners were great developmentalists. And so I pay attention to those paradigms as well. You know, I believe in Margaret Mahler and, and um, Annie Bergman and Fred Pine and uh, uh, separation and individuation as a way of development as well. And I believe in Piaget. And, but I believe Stanley's probably pretty good. And so I follow Stanley and um, was lucky enough to have known him. And so I follow Stanley's ideas about functional, emotional, developmental capacities. And I think all of education breaks between functional, emotional, developmental capacity three and functional, emotional, developmental capacity four. So the all of education, as I said in this slide, is to move kids from the givens to a transformation. And the point of all good education is to move a student from FEDCs one, two, three to FEDCs four, five, and six, and seven, and eight, and however other FEDCs there are. Because once you do that, you can teach a kid anything. If you teach a kid that when they encounter a bunch of stuff that they can deal with it, that they know how to, they have within them the ability to figure something out. You can sit them in a kindergarten class successfully, and you can also sit them in med school successfully, and you can also sit them in auto mechanic school successfully. It doesn't matter. Once you know that you have within you the capacity to make a transformation on it, you can learn all of math in 180, you know, um, educational hours and you can 
you know, geometry isn't a problem. You really just, all it is, is just sitting down with the givens and figuring out what to do next. Um, The same with calculus. It's just sitting down with the givens and figuring out what to do next. Once you know the rules, which are very quick to teach. Education is instilling in somebody the ability to imagine they can make transformations. And that's where we've fallen down in autism education. You mentioned this a little while ago about it's easier to keep everybody calm following the rules. This is a lot of the hurdle for parents who have children on the spectrum who might have behavioral problems that we deem problems, which we know in the DIR model, there's a reason behind that behavior and we need to find out what that is. But a lot of parents are so concerned with compliance and especially now with COVID, they have to work, they're doing their online work, they have other things to do. We need the child to be occupied, so we need compliance. And when we're only concerned about compliance, and you've talked about this in every podcast we've done, and I'll put a link to all the different podcasts we've done together in this blog post at affectautism.com under the good education um, post, that when we only teach compliance, our kids learn that they have to come up with a right or wrong answer and they don't think. And that's the whole point of DIR floor time is we are instilling that inquiry. Um, let's, let's think of what we can do. And even with my eight-ish years of experience in floor time with my child, I still find myself every single day getting my child to comply. <laughs> and then I'm always reminding myself, oh, he needs to understand that he can think of something instead of just listening to what mama says. Because when I want him to do something, I get that very stern tone and I can see the alarm in him right away. Like I got to comply with mama. She's angry. She's using that angry tone. And that's exactly what we don't want to be the norm. We want them to be thinking. So, so I want to let you off the hook a little bit. And I want to let all parents off the hook a little bit. And in fact, I want to let everybody off the hook. There are two different ways that we do things. One of them is um, you have to comply with this because we have to move from A to B. Um, you don't have a choice, right? You're going to get a shot. You, you have to get the shot. Um, we're going to get vaccinated. That's what you're going to do. Or um, you've got to get out of the street because it's dangerous. So compliance is really necessary in certain circumstances. And so we all get parent voices, right? You know, we all throw an urgency into our voice and the demand in our voice, and then we expect things to be done. But uh, that's not what we want as the baseline. What we want as the baseline is I don't do the, the kid thinking. I don't do these things because there are rules in society. I can agree to the rules in society because I can think about the future. I can think about what this makes me look like as a citizen. I can think about where I want to stand in the community. That's what we want. Um, When you are only applying uh, compliance as the only way to get people to do things, um, you know, I'm going to either punish or reinforce this behavior until it either ceases to exist or comes into existence. Then essentially you're working on the paradigm of, of prisons, right? That I am going to stop you physically from doing this thing by removing you. And then I'm going to punish you, punish you, punish you, or reward you, reward you, reward you until you uh, just do what I want you to do without ever making any kind of change. Um, in you as an, as an entity. And that's not education. That's simply forcing compliance. And the way we fell into that is, um, and I explained this in this article, in this chapter, is schools have to operate with the largest number of students possible with the least number of teachers as possible because your tax dollars pay for your schools. Schools have a budget the biggest part of the budget, um, once they own the building and they own the ground and they are in charge of that, which most municipalities take care of, um, what is the staff? The staff are by far the most expensive thing in a school. And so 
the less staff you have, the better your budget is. And so you, the more children you can put in a place, the better you can afford to function. And so a big classroom with a lot of people requires compliance. And that same paradigm gets handed down into the special needs world that you have to have a larger special needs classroom. And so you have to have compliance. And that's how we got sold a bill of goods and we got told that this was education. And um, that's the first part. And the second part is how did parents end up buying that bill of goods? How did they come to believe that compliance and uh, regurgitating was education for their children? And that's, I think, an interesting thing. Uh, it seems to me that parents have been led to believe that their children with challenges will never achieve more than that. When parents are told from very early on, and, and Daria, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but when people said, well, you have to accept what your child's limitations are going to be, you're being unrealistic. Your child will never achieve that. Your child is not going to do that. Um, and so, uh, you know, as much as this may be the dream for your child, this is not going to happen. And I think parents get told that on a regular basis. And, and when I talk to parents, you know, they have been pulled aside finally after agitating, agitating, or worrying, 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 or whatever you want to call it. And finally, someone sits them down and has to talk. Well, you're going to have to be realistic. This is all your child is ever going to be able to do. And they get sold that as if that were true. And of course, that's never true. It, it's just never true. Human beings always continue to develop, always. And when they're nurtured to develop, they continue to develop. It may not be in the way that you're thinking, but human beings are developing. And so when you get told, you know, that's all that your child is ever going to do. And so let's be realistic here. Um, I love that phrase. You know, you're going to have to be more realistic about what your child is going to be able to achieve. Um, that's the other part of how we got this system. The parents had to be, had to be told, stop dreaming, be realistic. And, um, you know, that's pernicious, that's evil, <laughs> but that's what gets told to people. So um, I don't buy that at all. I do believe that human beings continue to develop. I do believe, uh, like Dr. Greenspan believed, that the window of development stays open. And, you know, clearly the society believes it because we give rehab to 90-year-old people who have strokes who lose their speech and help them to speak again. Clearly the society believes that your brain is capable of continual growth, even late in your lifespan. So um, I believe it too. And I think our educational system uh, has to shift away from concrete facts into creative thinking, into fostering an ability to think um, in a problem solving sort of way. And I think we can encourage parents to continue to believe that your child, the human being that you have a relationship, child or other who has developmental challenges will continue to grow uh, as we all do. And um, that we can foster that as part of the educational system. So I think what we've been given and what we've come to accept is a pretty lousy deal. And it doesn't have to do with our really gifted and creative educators. It has to do with the system that we somehow have come to believe in this sort of educational industrial system. And one thing we haven't really touched on yet is the, or, or maybe directly touched on, the fact that education is geared to a norm, but we know with the Bell distribution that there's people at this end of the norm and people at this end, and those are the people that get left out. It's like this bulk in the middle that education works for. They're able to consume facts quickly. They're able to put two together, figure it out and figure out what they have to do, but the rest of the kids get lost. And maybe this pandemic 
like it's forcing so many businesses to change their model because things are moving online now. And going forward, it's it sort of pushed us forward faster in transitioning things that were outdated to get with the times. Maybe that's part of what's going to need to change is more individualized education because not everybody learns the same way. Uh, I So... I want to unpack what you just said because there are a lot of stuff in there. Mm -hmm. The last thing you said, I'll start with first, which is individual education, individualized education needs to be the norm. And of course, that's the only answer. And, but a teacher will tell you, I can't do individualized education in the group setting, but you can, you can by asking everybody to look within themselves educationally and figure out what it is they have within them that can they can bring to the problem at hand. That's what education is. So of course you can do that. But the other thing you said, I think, is what education would like you to believe. Educational systems would like you to believe, here's the bell curve. We, t we you know, we have limited resources. We're teaching to the center of this bell curve and they are getting the education, you know, so we're covering 95% of the people and two standard deviations away, we're not covering. But that's not true at all. They're not educating within the 95%, they're not. They're doing bad education with them. So explain if we're doing good education, explain to me why 70% of high schoolers uh, report crushing anxiety every day. Why are they so anxious before the pandemic? This is before the pandemic, when education was cooking along exactly the way it was supposed to. Why are they incredibly anxious and not able to deal with problems? It's because the education they're being dealt is absolutely of no use to them. <clears throat> it is not helping them deal with an ever-changing, complex, rapidly changing society. It's not. So, I think it's a fallacy that education is dealing with kids who are in the norm. Truthfully, Daria, I think education gives bad education here. And then as you get out in the tail up high where what we would call gifted classes are taking place, those classes actually are pretty good. <laughs> they're STEM classes, they have cool things, they're creative problem solving, they're building things. They're doing like those classes are pretty good. But then this big lump of classes are not so good. And then of course, the attending to people who are traditionally at this tail is really bad. So um, uh, I think it's not true that education, that hiding behind the fact that we have to educate the largest group of people we can, um, and then we can't really attend to the tales. I, I think that's not true. I don't actually think that actually happens. I think we love to attend to the kids who will wear goggles and Bunsen burners, but we, we, we are not attending to the people who have these tremendous talents which are not recognized in the way we measure, measure intelligence, um, which are not, our intelligence tests fail them drastically. And so um, they are just as intelligent as this tale and they're just as intelligent as this tale. So everybody in the giant bell curve is equally intelligent. They just don't happen to be captured by what we call intelligence tests. And so I think we're doing a bad job with almost everybody, except for where we have special classes with small class size and you know, you're, you're in the gifted program now. Then all of a sudden we're doing pretty good. We're doing better anyways. Yeah, that's a good point. And um, certainly those gifted programs have smaller class size, more attention to uh, each student. And, and that goes to the, the biggest part of DIR floor time, the R, the relationship. And when we see all these movies that are big box office hits about these kids that are either in, you know, terrible socioeconomic status areas and, and, you know, the school's awful. And then this one teacher comes in and inspires the kids and they all triumph or, you know, children that are 
are labeled special needs and that wonderful teacher comes in and sees the spark in that child and and really you know brings them up to their uh, potential if you will it's always about relationship and so why don't we end off with you describing what good education would look like in a dir framework and as you mentioned it's not the only developmental framework that works but it's the one that that we both like so if i could just say all right i'm going to create good education as best that i can if i were talking about someone who had a developmental challenge of the type that i very typically um, work with in my practice and my consulting and um, in the schools that I've started and in the um, schools that I consult to. So we're talking about people who have things that get identified as autism spectrum challenges very often. Um, so an ideal school would obviously have people, teachers set up in a position where they can create relationships, which teachers are really good at. They do connect with students and they, they love to be with them. And when given a chance, teachers connect with students. So they would be relationship-based, um, which by the way, is the only, only way any education gets done. Um, and there would be classrooms which were conducive to being able to have enough calm that they would be able to work on people actually making those transformations on things. That being said, the way that you help people from my perspective and your perspective to do that is you have to have good um, places where people's way of perceiving the world and differences in integrating their senses and differences in integrating uh, all of the input coming from the outside in order to create a coherent view of the world um, is supported. So that often looks like a good sensory occupational therapy program. Um, very important. Um, and then, of course, you know, my tremendous prejudice toward and love of um, clinical music therapy. So if I were going to uh, create an ideal program for somebody, I would support their sensory system. I would have great education focusing on that jump from functional emotional developmental capacity three to functional emotional developmental capacity four. And I would have a clinical music therapist involved. And that wouldn't be um, just a person doing morning circle time music. It would be a person who would be able to get in a conversation with a student opening and closing circles in a more or less continuous way musically because music um, is an affect-based communication. And I think it's a, a really important support for a good DIR floor time model. So I always talk about Nordoff Robbins music therapy. It may not be the only music therapy that does this in the world. So I admit my ignorance, but it is the one that I'm familiar with and that I'm in love with. So I always advocate for that. Um, and then kids would be outside, you know, and even if that's a city, they would be outside. And so being out in the world makes a difference and moving in the world makes a difference and being in the elements makes a difference. So uh, the, the dumbest thing our society ever does is cut out recess and gym time and music classes and then say, well, we need more time for uh, a math class or a science class, both of which are marvelous and important for the development of the society, but for the development of the education of the child, um, movement in space is going to make a tremendous difference. So it would be outside if I could keep my classes outside all day long, I would. Um, and I know that's not realistic in most parts of the world. Um, my greatest advocacy is that these recess times are not breaks from education. They are in fact, an integral part of education. Of course, you'll always have critics saying, how are we gonna afford this? And I know lots of people say, it's just the way the money's distributed. I, I, I firmly believe that. I don't think it's more expensive. I think it is tremendously less expensive. And uh, when a five-year-old is capable of confronting every new situation as just an adventure and something to be solved, as opposed to um, a limitation and an obstacle which they can't get by, then 
the world gets freed up and our educational system becomes much less expensive and uh, people leave the educational system without needs of the kind of supports that they are currently leaving the educational system needing. And, you know, if we provided that kind of education, a high school education would mean something again. Um, would I, in the United States, where now, um, you know, everybody's got to have a, a college education in order to make the next step and it's creating tremendous divisions in our society. If you wanted your high school education to mean something, you should actually help people to be creative problem solvers and thinkers in a way that they are not, which they are eminently capable of being, but we haven't supported. I, there's good reason to be optimistic. I think um, even though the educational paradigm is sort of concretized at this point and is really difficult to move, in the world of special challenges, things are changing and we are moving more quickly than everywhere else in the educational system to the idea that human beings develop, that they have a right to develop, that they continue to develop, that our support of them can continue past um, secondary um, education. And that given that timeline that they will develop into uh, these free thinking, creative individuals who will bring their great gifts to the society. So I think that even more than in general education, I think in special, what we call special education, but for people with challenges, I think it's even, there's even reason, greater reason to be optimistic. And I know there's so many more neurodiversity programs popping up around now that um, autistic advocates are out there and vocal. And I've seen a number of them starting websites about neurodiverse ways of teaching. And so I think the more that that pops up, the more that helps raise awareness as well for everybody. I, I, I support people who are advocating for neurodiversity. And I think that all of us are trying to get to the same thing. And that is to allow people to be as unshackled as possible in expressing the great gifts that they have and bring them to the benefit of themselves and of the society. That's a great, great thought to end off today with. So thanks again, Dr. Tippy. Always a pleasure speaking with you. And listeners or viewers, you can look at the blog post at affectautism.com under Good Education, and I will put links to different things that we've talked about and past podcasts that we've elaborated on some of those points more. And uh, hopefully you enjoy and will share this post with people on your social media. Thank you so much. And, you know, it is always a pleasure. I love to see you and, and talk and it's always thought provoking for me. Well, we'll have you back again soon. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.